Your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 this morning as we continue our series in the book of Romans. We're actually dividing the book of Romans into five different sermon series. I think the book lends itself, commends itself to that effectively. And the first of those is uh, Romans chapter 1 through 3, understanding the human condition. My perspective on the whole book of Romans is that Paul is addressing two groups of people, trying to merge them in heart and mind and thought. They are people that have a religious background uh, in the Jewish faith. They are monotheistic, one God. They understand the scriptures, uh, the laws of God. And they have come to faith in Christ there in Rome. And then there's another group of people that have utterly no religious background in terms of the Christian or Jewish faith. They have been in paganism. They have worshipped uh, the gods of mythology. Uh, they worship with statues and idols. Um, much of their even worship experience associated with sexual uh, immorality. And these groups are now thrown together in one group of congregations, and Paul is trying to remind them in this great book uh, that here are the things that you share. And the first place he starts is talking about what they share simply in their human condition. And so we've been looking at that. Today we're looking at chapter 2. Chapter 2 is really addressing both groups. And he is trying to say as he speaks to both groups that both of you uh, stand on common ground, on equal footing, that you both need utterly the grace of God, the gospel of God that is available in Jesus Christ. He's been talking in Romans chapter 2 as we've looked at various verses in here to the uh, the moralists, the religious people, uh, Jewish background in their context. Um, and I did a sermon last time and I entitled it, Religious People Can Be Dangerous People. And I think that's what he's finding in the Roman church. These people were dangerous because of their, their lack of awareness of themselves, of what was driving themselves. Even though they had truth, they were manifesting in different ways and blind to themselves. Now he's speaking to the other group of people, and we're looking at verses 12 through 16 uh, of Romans chapter 2, and I'd like to read those aloud for you. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Let's pray together. Lord, we gather and we've just sung a song that says you don't give your heart in pieces, that you offer yourself wholly, fully to us, that we are offered the chance to know you, that you are in every sense at work in our lives with full heart of grace and kindness and holiness. And Lord, it is my prayer that as we reflect on this passage this morning that we would want to respond that way. 
that you might have our whole hearts, our whole lives, that we might be yielded to you and the things that you declare to us, that you make known to us today, maybe this week, that each of those pieces of our lives we would be willing to yield more and more of ourselves to you. Teach us to that end, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to verses 12 through 16, Paul is talking to that second group of people and he, about that second group of people. And in a broader sense, he is talking about people that may not, that have that background, but may not have even embraced Jesus Christ as Savior. And he's saying, you need to understand that God's standard for law living is total holiness. And he said, you know, just because you have the law and you have the principles of God and doesn't mean that you have any superiority over anybody else because it is, it is living out the principles of those law that you are accountable to. And he says, you're accountable to living out what you know. But he also speaks to these people that have far less information. And a logical question, a question that probably every one of us have asked, is how, how accountable are people that have never heard things? I mean, he's talking to people about people here that have, that have a background where they, they didn't have the Scriptures. They, they didn't know about Jesus Christ. There's people like that in the world today. And the question that I think, the understated principle question behind this passage is, what about people have, who have not heard? Are they responsible for the very things he's saying to the others? And what if they don't embrace Christ? What if they don't respond to revelation that's been given? We're going to look at that this morning, but I first want to just mention two things. And this is just theological perspective about the fact that God is always revealing himself. He is always making himself known throughout all the world. And there's two different ways that God makes himself known uh, from theologian talk. And basically, one is by what's called natural or general revelation, and the other is by special revelation. Natural revelation is that which is God making himself known in ways that everyone can see. Uh, creation is an example of that. Genesis, Romans chapter 1, he's talked about it. He says, you know, you're, you're responsible uh, because, and he says, everyone is without excuse if they say they're not living according to the principles of God, if they're trying to change their understanding of God, because I have revealed the invisible things about myself in the visible things I've made. And he says, so you can, there's nowhere on planet earth, at no time, no people group, no age of history, where people can, can say, I didn't know. I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know he was like that. Because he said, my power and my godness is revealed in creation. And to create me into an idol or to reduce me, which we all do as we talked about how we all have our own set of idols, reducing God is to deny the revelation he's given about his godness and his bigness. But in chapter 2, he's going to talk about a second thing that is general revelation, and that is intrinsic within every human being. Every person has a voice of conscience that is declaring to us things about God as well, particularly about his will. But there is also a thing called special revelation. And while everybody on earth has general revelation, not everybody on earth has special revelation. Special revelation is God's making himself known in ways that not everyone sees. The scripture is special revelation. God has not 
made it so every people group, every person on planet earth has a Bible. That is still true. Was certainly true in, in the day in which Paul was writing. The most full and complete revelation of God that he ever gave is found in the person of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, it says this, God has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. If you want to see God, he says, there's no place where God is more revealed than in seeing and knowing Jesus Christ. Now, in, in Paul's day, people had actually seen the physical Christ. None of you have seen that. But we have seen him, we have learned him, we have gotten to know him through the scriptures. But, but this is special revelation that not everyone has. And so the question is, what about people that don't have this special revelation? What about people that haven't heard the name of Jesus? What about people that don't have a, a Bible? Are they still culpable? Are they still accountable? Will there still be judgment? Well, in this passage, we're going to find that the answer is absolutely yes. And there are four things he tells us about people without special revelation. And the third, particularly fourth one, is, is going to really speak to all of us. Um, and that's really where the one I, I want to have us land the most. But people without special revelation will still be accountable. He says this in verse 12, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. When the term law is used here, it's talking about the, the law that is presented in the Scriptures, the law that was given in summary form in an umbrella statement of what is called the Ten Words, literally, or the Ten Commandments as we know them today. That's an umbrella statement. All the other commandments of God fall under the categories of the Ten Commandments, but they're the summary statement, the umbrella statement. And this is presented in the Old Testament experience and the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says there are people who sin, but they don't have that law. They've never read the Bible. They've never heard anybody tell them, this is commandment number one, this is commandment number two, this is commandment number four, five, six. Nobody's delineated that for them. And he says, for those who sin apart from the law, they will also perish apart from the law. And the word perish here is, is, is different from the way we use it, you know, we talk about perishable items like your meat, your, your fruit, your, your veggies. If you leave them out, they're going to they're gonna decay and rot. You need to pop them in the refrigerator. And, but the word perish here is a heavier word. It's a word that it, it carries an, an eternal aspect to it. It is actually to be perishing is to be in a state of eternal separation from true life. Most famous verse in the New Testament is this verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. These are the options. He says some people will perish. They will not experience. They will have an eternal state where they are not experiencing this true life. Others will have this eternal true life in a relationship with God, with him forever. But he says those that sin even if they don't have the law. They will be accountable without that law for the way they sinned against the law. Now, you might say, what? What? What do you mean they're accountable to the law that they don't have and therefore they will perish? I mean, this seems totally disingenuous and unfair. 
until we read verse 14 and 15. When Gentiles, when ethnos is apart from Judaism, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they don't have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thought, thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. He says, actually, they do have the law. They have the law written upon what he calls their consciences. And just like in the English, con uh, uh, means with, science means knowledge. That's exactly the word it's used in the original. It, they, they have knowledge with them. That is what a conscience is. It is declaring the knowledge of law. It is speaking that, that what is called by theologians natural law. It's why people, when somebody comes up to you and you find out they lied to you, your immediate reaction is, that's wrong. That is wrong. When, when somebody, you find out, all of a sudden you're looking on your bank statement and you're saying, I never bought that, I never bought that, I never bought that, I never bought that. Somebody hacked my debit card. And you feel, this is unjust. I didn't, I didn't give them that permission. There's a sense of being wrong. Well, being lied to, one of the commandments is, do not lie. One of the commandments is, do not steal. It's why when your boyfriend or girlfriend or your, your husband or wife is unfaithful to you, you automatically feel, this is not right. This is betrayal. That is one of the Ten Commandments. We could go on with each one. There is a sense in which we inherently feel this is not, there is improper behavior here. There's something that, that we all agree upon. These things are not right. It's wrong. Now, even the contemporary atheistic movement labors with this issue. Now, if you've, if you've read uh, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Sam Harris, some of the other boys, Basically, they are, they are integritous on this. They will regularly say there is no such thing as a moral code for all of humanity. That, that basically there, there is no overarching standard of righteousness. There is no God. Because they're, they're conscientious enough, integritous enough to say, at least what I have read, they will, they will all acknowledge that that if we agreed there is a, a universal moral code that is absolutely built in to, to everyone, that everyone would, that we, then we have to think there is a lawgiver. There is a code maker. And so they do what Sam Harris, and, uh, on a, and I mentioned this in our Thinking Like a Christian seminar, Sam Harris, on a video I watched, he was talking about morality. And it was uh, thorough presentation, 55-minute presentation about his view of morality. He was talking about where does morality come from. And he says morality is, it, where morality comes from is he has this term. Mora morality is actually maximizing well-being. That a group of people, a society, a civilization, a community say what will maximize our well-being. That's what will determine will be our morality. And we don't have the right to pass on anybody else's morality because we're just saying this is just what we have agreed. It makes sense. It's logical. But Sam Harris in this thing about two-thirds of the way in all of a sudden got into a fascinating discussion about his own inner turmoil. And what he talked about was he said, okay, I'm going to be honest. I, I, there's something I'm really struggling with. I've been struggling with it for a long time. My struggle is 
There are, there are masses, multitudes of human uh, populace that are doing things. In his particular case, he was talking about Arabs and particularly uh, Islamic Arabs. And he says, there are things in their maximizing of well-being that I find utterly offensive. The idea of all their women uh, having to wear veils. The idea of jihad, which in his, in his analysis was not simply something of extremists. It was actually built into the, the code, as he understood, of, of, of that part of the Arab world, uh, of, of that faith. And he, and he struggled. He, said, he listed a number of other things. He said, I struggle with this. And he says, I've actually spoken about it. And I've had my liberal friends come. And he's a liberal. And he says, my liberal friends have, have chastised me. And they say, Sam. You can't take them on. Remember, there's no such thing as a, a moral code. There's no such thing as an overriding standard of, of morality. And so you can, you can just say, well, it wouldn't be what I would do, but, you know, if it feels good, do it. It's your thing. You know, make your code. But he says, I just want to say, it's wrong. There's something that's just wrong. And he's laboring with this. And, and so here's what he said. He says, so this is my suggestion. I wonder if we can all agree that there is something within us, and I'd like to call it an intuitive morality that we all have. That is a fantastic definition of a conscience. That's exactly what God is saying. There is an intuitive morality. There is an intuitive moral code that is wired into us. Dr. Martin Luther King uh, this was the foundation of his entire letter from a Birmingham jail, which was his treatise on explaining, what, he was trying to explain to people why he felt it was justifiable to, to not obey certain laws. And it, it, he was willing, he was in jail, because he, he was willing to disobey and suffer the consequences, and he felt it was a matter of conscience. And in his argument, he talks about this entire principle. And historically, the law of conscience has other names. Many theologians use the word natural law. It is law that is natural to us. It is that with knowledge thing that is built into us that tells us. But here's, here's how he argued. Here's what he said. He says, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are our unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. It does not square with the voice of conscience which has been wired into all humans. And he's saying, we just recognize there are certain things in our, in our humanity. We recognize this is not right. Slavery is not right. Injustice is not right. Where does that come from? Where do these understandings come? He says, ultimately, they come from a voice that is wired into us. It is natural to us. It is the law of conscience. God here, through Paul, is saying, 
Every human being has this voice. Every human being has this general knowledge. Not only do we know from creation the existence of God, but we know in chapter 2 of Romans, we know from the voice of conscience the laws of God. And best way to say it, I've used this illustration before, you know, every now and then you'll see a bumper sticker to say something like, if it feels good, do it. You know, and you just pull up to a red light and you just want to grab out of your trunk a baseball bat and just go up and start pounding on this thing and jump out of the car and, and this guy comes running out and he'd say, he'd say to you, what are you doing? You'd just say, just obeying the law, man. Just obeying your sticker. Well, of course, do feel if it feels good as long as it doesn't go against what we all know to be appropriate behavior. There is a law, a natural law, and what Paul is arguing that, yes, everyone on earth who has sinned has sinned consciously against a moral code that is built within them. Now, that leads us to a second point, and that is this. People without special revelation will be accountable for less. It's interesting how verse 14 begins. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, in this whole passage, Paul is, is trying to talk to the, uh, chapter 2 is primarily directed to uh, what we would call today Judeo-Christian background people in the church with the religious heritage of, in the Christian scriptures and the, the Old Testament scriptures. But he's saying, you know, the issue is what do you do with what you know? He says even the Gentiles, the, the ethnos, the, the ethnic other groups, even they are culpable and responsible to obey what they know. But the implication is, but they know far less than you know, and they will have far less accountability. That principle is seeded here, but I would suggest it's, it's delineated in other passages very clearly, that God does judge on the basis of the amount of revelation someone has. Hebrews chapter 10 says this in verse 28 and 29. This is what he says. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? He says, you know, they're culpable for obeying the laws that were given on Mount Sinai, but how much more someone who has, has learned from Jesus the very character of God and seen God more fully, who has heard Jesus explaining the, the, the heart depth of those commandments, he says the more revelation, the greater the accountability. God will judge with equity, with appropriate equity. He even says that very specifically about himself in Psalm 75, verse 2. He says, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge with equity. Absolutely. People that only have general revelation will have far greater ramifications of judgment based on the amount of revelation they would receive. Again, we would expect that because God is just and fair. Number three, People without special revelation do things that are praiseworthy and good. Verse 15, the latter part, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. The Navajo Indians have a tradition uh, about the conscience. 
And the tradition is, they, they picture, they, they sense this thing, and, and they have a, uh, uh, a metaphor for it, a, a visual, and they talk about how there is in each person a, a metal triangle that's in the heart. And, and when someone does something um, that they know they shouldn't do, this, this triangle spins, and it's pointy on the, on the, on the three corners, and it it, it had been off angle, all of a sudden it comes and it pokes you and it, and it pinches you and then it'll go around, prick you again and, and they said, but, but here's how they delineate that. They say, but what happens if someone has what they call a stony heart, we would call a hard heart, as this thing spins, if they continue to have a hardened heart, eventually the conscience gets sort of dulled and the ends get dulled as it keeps going around. The Bible says that happens, that consciences can be seared. The word there is, is like an iron. You leave it on a shirt on the ironing board, and you forget about it, and you come back, and the iron's going all the way down to the ironing board. You've got a big iron-shaped hole in your shirt. I am speaking by experience on this, I'm sad to say. That, that you can burn out your conscience, and, and in Navajo talk, you can, you can dull it. But, but I think sometimes when we think about the conscience of people that are not in the faith, we think that, well, their, their conscience, it doesn't really work. Um, or if it does, the only role of the conscience is to convict them. Because we know from Romans chapter 3, you know, it says there is none that doeth good, not even one. And so, you know, they must never do anything. I, I don't think that's what Romans 3 is saying. I think in Romans chapter 3, it is saying that there is none of us whose lives have God, uh, where our whole lives are oriented to doing the will of God, nor lives where God is at the center of our lives. But notice verse 15 of Romans 2. It says the consciences, now these are people that don't have special revelation. All they are responding to is their conscience. Sometimes it says it's accusing them. Sometimes it's affirming them, defending them. It's saying, attaboy. You know, that was good. That was good what you did. That was a generous thing to do. So we can do that. You know, if that's how God's conscience in people's lives work, I think we can do that as Christians. Sometimes we're afraid to, to commend unbelievers or, or people that aren't in the faith. And they go, oh boy, if, you know, if I, if I tell them they're, they're, they're wonderful or, or there's beauty in that or, or what a lovely thing for them to do, then, then uh, they're never going to see their need of Jesus. I don't know about you, but... People that are only critical all the time, I don't want to be around. And, and, and I think what the, the passage reminds us is there's value in affirming that. There are times when they are affirmed. There are beautiful things people do. That is not enough to bring them to salvific faith because Paul is strongly arguing nobody gets there on their own righteousness but he's also saying that the conscious sometimes affirms as well as it denounces. It defends as well as accusing. And so we see beauty in the lives of people around us. And I think as Christians, we ought to affirm that. We ought to be the people in the, in the office or in the school or in the family that are saying, that man, that was such a kind thing for you to do. They can. Of course people can do kind things. Whether Jesus is at the center of their lives or not, they can do uh, gentle things. They can do generous things. But it's the fourth thing I want to jump on. 
People without special revelation can bring insightful critique of believers. This last point, I think, is, is foundational to what Romans 2 is about because he's primarily talking to the group that he was most concerned about in Romans, which were the people with religious background and religious truth that were sort of looking down um, on the other believers. And he's basically saying in this passage, you can learn from them. You know, uh, they're responding. What I'm asking of both of you is respond to the light you're given. They are responding. We can learn from people who do not have special revelation, who do not have relationship with Christ, who do not know the Scriptures. But we can learn because they do have general revelation. They can smell a rat. They can understand that's not, uh, I just know inherently that's, that's not right. That doesn't feel, uh, there's a book I read a number of years ago. I just brought it out again recently. It's entitled Suspicion and Faith. It's written by, by Merrill Westfall. And uh, he is a professor at Fordham University. He's a believer, but he's speaking, uh, he's teaching philosophy in a very uh, unbelieving context. And he wrote this, this interesting book. And now his critiques of uh, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche, I'll say at the beginning, I don't consider myself a, a, a guy who's able to critique these three men. Um, I'm, I'm leaning a lot into him, but I will say his writing really made a lot of sense to me. And I want to just share a couple of things he said. His, his thing is, we as Christians are often blind to our own flaws. And we do that because things become familiar. I mean, if you moved out of your house for three months and you moved back in, I guarantee you would see things you don't see now. Oh, my goodness, those paints don't even match. Oh, I, they, oh I not, look at that. We still haven't repaired that ceiling. Oh, because we become blind to our own flaws. There is value of having another set of eyes. Well, I think he's advocating allowing people without special revelation who are part of the letting others outside have voice into us. His book is saying the value of listening to what he considers the three leading secular writers that have the most influence on turning people away from faith, at least in his perspective, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche. Now, the first two are somewhat passe today. Uh, Nietzsche is still very much at the heart of postmodernity and foundational thought behind that. But a couple of things he says. He's talking about Freud, and he tells a story about how Freud, uh, in the book, he talks about this, this historic study that was done that Freud was a part of, and it was about a girl that was raised in a fairly strict home, and they did fairly uh, severe spanking. And they studied the behavior of the girl and were fascinated to realize that this girl, when she would do something, um, break something, very much behave, do something she knew was wrong, she would actually give cues to her parents so they would find out. She might uh, say something about, you know, in the other room, you know, you probably had to check something out or, or be more subtle and just sort of stand by it until they happen to come by. And, and they realized, and, and yet the interesting thing was, and she would be disciplined, but she never changed. She never improved. Nothing, nothing changed through it. And so what Freud said was what was going on was this girl 
was actually using her parents' discipline to give her license for other behavior because it was like, okay, I've been disciplined. I, I, I paid my dues. Now I'm going to do it something else. Now I'm going to do something else. You know, I've already, I've paid my debt. And, and he says, she used her parents to encourage more active acting out. And Freud used that as an example to say that is what people do with God. God didn't create you. You create God to give you permission to, and, and he disciplines you, and now you can do what you want. His argument was this. Your religion enables you to justify your selfish behavior. And, and his whole argument was there isn't a God. You create one, and one of the reasons you create a God is it actually empowers you to do your selfish behavior. You may or may not agree with that, but here's what Mark said. Mark talked about the, uh, you know, religion is the opiate of the people. It's a drug that, that helps them in their pain, helps them get through life. And he says that's exactly what uh, Marx came about and said, this is what you're doing to the proletariat. You leaders are encouraging your people, uh, the masses, to turn to religion. Because they turn to religion and they think, you know, my lot is hard in this life, but... You know, I'm living for a life to come. I'm living for heaven. God may use good things to come out of hard things in my life. And all it's basically doing is giving you a sweet spot to maintain control. And, and it's an opiate. And you're using that to, to drug them. And that's what religion is. And his, his view was religion allows you to justify your mistreatment of other people. Third, Nietzsche comes along, and Nietzsche, which has very much influence still contemporarily in people's thinking, and Nietzsche comes in and basically says, you know, anytime you say, I know something, which is why postmodernity has jumped on this, anytime you say you know something, it's a power play. You're actually uh, looking at your, your knowledge as justification for you to do everything else. As long as you're right... You can do whatever you want. That, 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 that that's where you're finding it. But it's power. It's always power. And so his statement was, um, anytime you say you know something, it's a power play. It is justifying everything else because you're right. All three of those guys, according to the author, is saying uh, the contemporary critique of religion is that people use religion to serve themselves, to feel good about themselves, to get what they want. Now you may say, ah, that's not true. I don't do... Well, to be perfectly frank, I think we do all three of those things. I think we do justify selfish behavior sometimes because we're Christians. That we can get away with this. You know, after all, we, you know, we're, we're believers. And, uh, I think we justify mistreatment of others. I could give examples of this, some which would probably get me in trouble, so I'll, I'll move on. But number three, um, we justify um, being right. That it, uh, as long as we're right, as long as we're correct, you know, we're, we're, then maybe we don't have to be quite as nice, quite as benevolent. We can do all those things, but we can do it with blind spots. We can do it without realizing. And I think the author is what he's trying to say is we can learn. There's a reason these guys have got such a following. There's a reason people are embracing their thoughts because they see, we know people of religious faith that that's exactly what we sense they're doing. How do they know that? Because they also have an inherent sense that things are right and wrong. That there are certain things that are done with pride. There are certain things that are done selfishly. 
There's a story, I've, I've talked about this, well, not for a long time, but it's a story written by Flannery O'Connor. And in, in her book, um, what, can you bring it up because I can't remember it. Um, can you bring up Flannery? There, there, thank you. Everything that rises must converge. There's a story in this series of short stories that is called Revelation. If you haven't read it, I would read it. I, I really think it's an important read. Flannery O'Connor in this, who is a, a believer, uh, Flannery O'Connor is presenting uh, a southern doctor's office. And basically what happens is Mrs. Turpin, Mrs. Turpin is a Christian lady, loves Jesus, knows the Bible, church-going woman, um, successful uh, farmer with her husband, Claude, and she goes to a doctor's office. And when she's at the doctor's office, here's what happens. She goes in and the doctor's office is crowded. And she realizes not many, there's no seats. The only seats are, there's a bench area where there's a family, a mother with a couple of kids, and in her mind, in her expression, they're, they're white trash. They're, they're rough, they're dirty, they're ignorant. Uh, her, she categorizes who they are. And she looks, and one of the kids lying down, there's, there's not, there would be plenty of room for her and Claude to sit there, but they don't move. So they're standing there. And Mrs. Turpin looks around, and there's this lady over here who's a stylish woman. That's how she's called. Um, and they catch each other's eyes, and there's immediate connection. And she knows by the look of this lady that this lady is saying to Mrs. Turpin, if those were my children, they'd be up right now and making room for you. You're fully justified in feeling that you are mistreated. I'm sorry that there are people like that that don't take care of their children and, and show proper. There's an immediate bond between those two. Now, there's an immediate disconnect between her and this mother. And then there is, most importantly, a relationship she has with a young woman that is in the doctor's office who later we find out is named Mary Grace. And Mary is an 18 or 19-year-old student at Wesley University, which is a very secular school. And she is reading a book, and she is more and more giving off hostility without ever getting involved towards Mrs. Turpin and her communication, particularly with this stylish woman. And so what's going on? Here's a couple of things that, that take place. Uh, Mrs. Turpin looked at this girl with, with compassion. Uh, the student, she looks at her. She's heavy. Uh, she has uh, pockmarked, uh, real damage on her face in, in, in a number of ways. She's got a lot of things that Mrs. Turpin thinks are not going for her. And, and even though, and this is the thinking of Mrs. Turpin, even though Mrs. Turpin is also heavy, she had always had good skin. And though she was 47 years old, there's not a wrinkle in her face except around her eyes from smiling too much. So she's looking and she's identifying with the stylish woman. She's, we're told that, that Mrs. Turpin very clearly in her own mind sometimes lies awake and just thinks about different classes of people. And she knows where people are. There's different segments. She's got white trash down a ways. She's got ultimately moving way up. There's, there's people that own their own homes in the area. And then there's the top of the ladder is people that own land and homes, which happens to be her and Claude. And now she wants to be very gentle and, and generous. But she's sitting there and here's, I'm just trying to give you a feel for this. They're looking, and Mrs. Turpin notes a beautiful clock that's in the room, and she's frustrated that the doctor has not 
you know, taken care of, getting rid of the cigarette butts. She'd certainly got those out of those, the waste baskets. And, and uh, he should have a bigger garage. After all, imagine how much money he gets for every visit. I mean, a bigger waiting room. This is just the size of the garage. But she says, that's a beautiful clock, she said, and, and, and looks towards the big wall clock that is encased in a brass sunburst. Yes, it's very pretty, the stylish woman said. And right on the dot, too she said, glancing at her watch. The ugly girl, that's Mrs. Turpin's identification of the student, beside her cast an eye upward at the clock, smirked, then looked directly at Mrs. Turpin and smirked again. Then she returned her eyes to the book. In her relationship with the, the mom, who she uh, views as uh, lower class, she tries to avoid conversation because she, as she knows in her mind, she knows you start talking and you just can't ever get out of the conversation. But the lady finally engages her and gets her without realizing she has just stepped into a giant landmine, a minefield. Mrs. Turpin and Claude are hog farmers. Here's what the lady says unknowingly. One thing I don't want... She said, wiping her mouth with the back of her hand, hogs, nasty, stinking things, a grunting and a rooting all over the place. Mrs. Turpin gave her the merest edge of her attention, averted her eyes from the woman, and said, our hogs are not dirty, and they don't stink. They're cleaner than some children I've seen. Their feet never touch the ground. We have a pig parlor. That's where you raise them on concrete. She was now beginning to explain this to the stylish woman. And Claude scoots them down with the hose every afternoon and washes off the floor. To herself, she says, cleaner by far than that child right there. Poor nasty little thing. He had not moved since he put the thumb of his dirty hand in his mouth. Now the woman's embarrassed. She turns her face away from Mrs. Turpin, looking at the wall, and simply says, I know I wouldn't scoot down no hog with no hose. To which Mrs. Turpin thinks, you wouldn't have no hog to scoot down. Now, at this point, she looks to the stylish woman, and this is what the author says, the look that Mrs. Turpin and the pleasant lady exchanged indicated they both understood that you had to have certain things before you could know certain things. All this time, she's sensing the animosity from this girl that is never engaging in the conversation, but she is obviously seething. Finally, it reached a climax where Mrs. Turpin says to the whole room, If it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. When I think who I, all I could have been besides myself and what all I got, a little of everything and a good disposition besides, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, for making everything the way it is. It could have been so different. Then she's quiet, musing on this. For one thing, somebody else could have gotten clawed. At the thought of this, she was flooded with gratitude, and a terrible pang of joy rang through her. And then she blurted out in the room, oh, thank you, Jesus, Jesus, thank you. She cried aloud. The book struck her directly above her left eye. 
I'm going to come back to this in just a second and close. For most of us, when we think about Christian hypocrisy, people blind to themselves, I think we like to think of somebody like the warden in the Shawshank Redemption, if you've ever seen that thing, self-righteous, Bible-toting, church-going guy that was stealing, that was using the inmates, uh, abusing them to get what he wanted, and finally in the end he gets his with the law, and you're all happy, we're all happy. And I think we like that. We get a guy like that. We're not walking in his shoes. But Mrs. Turpins, if you read the story, she's a little unsettling. Because when you really hear her thinking, you think, I, 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 got, I got some of her. Don't even really see her in ourselves often. It might take a Mary Grace. Mary Grace throws the book at Mrs. Turpin, and then she actually lunges across the room to try to grab her. Mrs. Turpin is knocked to the floor, and Mrs. Turpin looks up to her, and she says, what is your problem? To which Mary Grace says, go, go back to hell, you old warthog. And then she's escorted out of the room, and everybody cares for Mrs. Turpin. But Mrs. Turpin is shaken. And later that day, she's in the farm. She's out by herself. And she's talking to God. And she says, what did you send me a message like that for? It's a low voice, but it's a fierce voice, barely audible above a whisper with the force of a shout in its concentrated fury. How am I saved and from hell too? There's no trash around here that I haven't given to. And break my back to the bone working every day for him and for the church. How can I be saved and still from hell? I think the name of the girl was intentional. It's Mary Grace. I think the author, and I'll, I'll show you why in a moment. I think the author is saying this girl was a gracing to Mrs. Turpin. She allowed her to see things in herself. And here's the way the story ends. She's standing there, cried out to God in her quiet but furious voice. And she has a vision. And the vision is a beam of light. And the vision is that she's looking at a, at a, at a bridge, a large bridge that is extending from the field up towards heaven. And as she's watching, she recognizes that there are different groups of people. It's a vast horde of people that are going. And the vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. Here's what it, she said. There were whole companies of trash, cleaned for the first time in their lives, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once, as those who, like herself and Claude, has always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. In fact, they alone were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues 
were being utterly burned away. I would suggest to you she got a vision of the gospel. That she was graced by a woman who didn't know Bible, by a woman who didn't know Jesus, but who sensed in her own spirit, because she does have the voice of God within her, a conscience that says, this woman knows all these things, but she's proud, and she's arrogant, and she's, she's uh, patronizing to other people that she feels less than her. She's blind to her own self-righteousness. And Mary Grace nailed her. We need Mary Graces. We don't just need each other, Bible toters, that we get it and we affirm and we believe the same. We need people that will smell a rat that we might not smell. Maybe it's that guy in the cubicle that you can't stand where you work. Maybe it's that neighbor that is just eating your lunch. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's somebody else that God has allowed in your life or a situation he's allowed in your life. And he's saying, this is Mary Grace. This is a gracing to you. Embrace this. Allow this to change you. See, this is part of gospel work. That it isn't only believers that are going to help you on your journey of faith. It's the people that you would be most surprised that God is using to grace you. Claude couldn't help Mrs. Turpin see what Mary Grace could. But Mary Grace was just a tool in the hands of a God that was determined to change this woman into more conformity to the image of Jesus. We can embrace our hardships. We can embrace our hard people. We can embrace our difficult circumstances and difficult co-workers as Mary Graces in the grace of God. I love that song that we sang earlier. God, you don't give your heart in pieces. I think that's what Jesus is asking for us. He wants all of us. He wants us to be willing to say, Lord, use the tools in my life. I've got blind spots. I've got layers of, 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 of the onion skin that I, I didn't even know were there that need to be peeled back. Maybe those hard things and those hard people in your lives are gracing you if we can embrace them and see the purpose God has for them. Lord, There's none of us that does not have blindness to our flaws. Maybe there are things that you brought into our lives and we really do believe that you don't waste experiences. You don't waste the choices you've made of people that are in our direct lives our work lives, our school lives, our, our neighborhood lives. Help us to embrace them. Let you grace us through them that you might more and more have all of us, not just us in pieces. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.